Tony Duchesne here, and let me give you some context for this episode of Drinks with Tony with Maggie Downs, the author of Braver Than You Think. We taped this episode before pandemic, pre-shelter-in-place, back when she trekked all the way out from her home in Palm Springs to Los Angeles in her motor vehicle. And it's funny to hear the background noise of the room. And that's all intentional, because when I used to record in cafes and bars up till two months ago, well, sometimes the people around me would just be utterly irritating. And there would always be that one damn person at the cream and sugar area, you know what I'm talking about, who still hadn't figured out their ratio of how much sugar or how much cream to put in their coffee, so they would sip. No, 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 I need a little more cream. And they would sip more. No, no, no. I need a little more sugar. And I used to hate those people because who the hell doesn't know how much sugar and cream to put in their coffee when they're adults? Don't get me wrong. I still hate those people, but damn, it was so much fun, so much more fun to be irritable with them than in those olden days. Before of my exclusive hatred was hyper-focused on a dude who ate a bat. What are you going to get? Hi, I'm Maggie Downs, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Maggie Downs. She's the author of Braver Than You Think, Around the World on the Trip of My Mother's Lifetime. Now, hi, Maggie, and hi. Hi, how are you? I'm great. First off, uh, mother's lifetime is in parentheses. So did I say that right? No, yeah. Did I say the title right? The subtitle? Right. You did say it right. We thought it was kind of a um, like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, because usually people talk about the trip of their lifetime. And in this case, it was it was kind of um, an homage to my mother's. So it's the trip of my mother's lifetime. How does it feel the book is coming out? This is your first, I know you've been a writer for many years, but this is your first book. How does it feel coming out and also paying tribute to your mom in such a big way? Um, so this, so I'm in the pre-pub stage and it's, it's a surreal time. I feel like I'm kind of in limbo or like some weird kind of purgatory where I'm just waiting to find out if people like me and and that's not a comfortable feeling and it's not comfortable to have the book so far out of my hands so um, you know at any given time I'm like 95% anxiety and about 5% pizza I'm totally eating my feelings and just um, trying to exist right now (laughs) Isn't it? Uh, people look forward to this all their lives, and they have no idea that it's. Well, I don't know what pregnancy's like, but it's like the third trimester for four years. It seems like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so I will tell you what pregnancy is like. I have one child, and I loved being pregnant right up until the very, very end. And then I was consumed with all of this bizarre anxiety. Like, um, I really thought I was going to give birth to a dolphin. Or, um, or that he would be born without a butthole. I was very, you know, they say like one in 1,000 children are born without the, their buttholes. And so oh, I was. Well, that's huge. <laughs> yeah. One in 1,000? Yeah. That's like a lot. That's like, that's. that's You've met 1,000 people in your yes. lifetime. So, I mean, according to science, you have met someone who was born. So anyway, like this very much consumed me. So I have all of these irrational fears about my book, you know, and it is something that I've 
I've nurtured and worked on and like created for a long time. So, okay, the important question is, does your son have a butthole? He does have a oh. butthole. Oh, dear Lord, okay. Hopefully my book will have one, too. <laughs> if only everyone's book can have a butthole, but there's one in a thousand that doesn't have a butthole. And we may have read that book. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how I took us down this road already. I have only had one sip of my drink, Tony. So. Yes, and um, I forgot the name of your drink. It was, it was rad. It's something metal. It's death metal forever. I mean, when you see that on a drink list, you have to order it, right? Yeah. No, I, if I see death metal forever on a drink list, I better be puking in about 10 minutes. There, <laughs> there better be some stuff in there that just hurts. Well, so this, um, according to the drink menu, this is a lot of gin and some gingery stuff and then something called rage, which I wouldn't think that I would need um, more of that. But um, so I have some rage in a glass today. You could, you could drink your rage. Uh, what I say is just push feelings down. Just push them down. It comes back up when you're, you know, 20 years from now. Yeah, yeah. No problem with that whatsoever. <laughs> If you had a dolphin baby, you could you could have you could have written uh, what was it? geek geek uh, geek love. You could have oh, written yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. That I, would have been the memoir right. version. Yeah, yeah. No, um, this is a very standard memoir with zero dolphin babies involved. Yeah. What the hell did you think going skydiving? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Right. Yeah. So um, so not only have I gone skydiving, but I. Uh, have gone skydiving more than 350 times yes. and um, and then I married my instructor so that's not everyone does that <laughs> well that's actually that brings us to people who online date they shouldn't online date they should engage in activities of extreme danger where they might die <laughs> right right yeah there was a point uh, with my skydiving instructor where I thought well if I trust him with my life, I guess I could go to the movies with him. <laughs> so I think that's a good test, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's intense. So, um, and I was, re when I was reading their first skydiving, and then I was like, you did this again? Yeah. <laughs> so, so what is it that you go, you know what? I need to do that thing that wanted, that where I wanted to throw up. I want, I was an out of body experience. It was the last place I ever wanted to be in my life. Let's do that again. Right. Yeah. You know, um, so when I initially decided to go skydiving, I was just at such a low point after my mom had been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease. Um, I really wanted to do things while I still could. And, and it was almost um, unhealthy thinking like that I could get Alzheimer's at some point in my life. So who cares if I, like I would rather go out skydiving than than getting Alzheimer's. So, so that's kind of where I was at that point in time, mentally. And then, um, but I, it turns out I really loved the sport. And you know, some people um, are real adrenaline junkies and I don't think I'm that person. I just, I found it to be very peaceful and very zen. And, um, and I could only focus on the skydive at the moment because you're not thinking about like what you have to do at work the next day, otherwise you will die. <laughs> So, um, so I really enjoyed just having that break from reality and, you know, my favorite jump of the day was always um, at sunset, the sunset load, 
and um, and I would deploy my parachute just a little bit early so that I could just be suspended in the sunset for an extra long period of time and just kind of hang out there in the sky and I it, and it was completely quiet and you're so separate from any problem or stress or anything I just I love it and I miss it all the time the, um, it's interesting how um, you, you were facing death with your mother and then it's it's like you put yourself in a situation for almost like how can I face death myself and then it, and then it, it's almost like a release of the fear of death Am I putting words into your mouth? Or? No, no, that's that's really accurate and that's very astute. Um, because I think a lot of us think um, think that we are um, invincible, you know, and we we don't think about death on a regular basis. And that's such a luxury and a privilege that we have in this country is just kind of assuming that we're going to survive. And so I I did put myself in those situations um, I think because I just needed to to feel something and to remind myself that life is short and and I think it's healthy it's good to have that reminder yeah yeah I, it's I think about death a lot yeah. <laughs> just in general but my anxiety is going down I'm going I'm doing a lot of therapy and right. stuff with it but but there is there is a freedom to going wait a second I am gonna die okay and just acknowledging that and going, oh, wait, everybody dies. Right. Just like everybody poops, yeah. except if they don't have a butthole, the one in a thousand. Right. Yeah. Whoa, someone, I think, maybe broke a glass. Yeah, yeah. We're t- <laughs> that, that was a death metal drink right there. Um, yeah, so I have a five-year-old, and uh, he is very consumed with talking about death right now. Really? He's very into death. Uh, we talk a lot about Does he smoke cloves and, has, uh, and wear eyeliner, too? He's totally going to be that kid. Um, he um, he's very curious about cemeteries and things about dead bodies, and um, and he will always tell me like how sad he's going to be when I die. But I, you know, I've so I talk about death and think about it a lot lately. But um, I I always tell him, you know, it's a side effect of life. Like we we're all going to die. So and and that's and. In some ways, that's kind of inspiring, right? Though, yeah. like knowing that your time is short, so do some good things with it. Yeah, don't sit in a cubicle and crunch numbers, and and then let forty years go by and go, wait a second, what did I do? Right. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was doing. Um, so right before I did the backpacking trip, that is the basis of my memoir. Um, I remember I was writing a story about some other woman who was traveling, and I thought. Why am I telling somebody else's story? You know, when do I get to tell my own story? And has that time already passed me by? And um, and that's really frustrating. And it, it, that was my like come to Jesus moment. <laughs> like I need to get out of this cubicle because I I want to be the creator of my own narrative. I don't want to be telling someone else's. Isn't it intriguing? As right, because I come up with this a lot, like teaching writing as well, where. I'm trying to explain what character is and how like how we react to conflict is how we are as characters but then we have to we have to condense that into a tincture for our you know for our stories to sound good on the, in the novel or in the film or whatever right. so it's there's a there's a beauty to being a writer and going oh wait this is another chapter oh wait this is a conflict how do I deal with this conflict what what takes me to the next plot twist right yeah exactly and I think especially for telling nonfiction too you just need to get your butt off the chair and do something 
you can always uh, you can always tell um, like when I am not doing enough because I have a lot of essays about like thinking about things or which is great but um, you really need to be meeting people and introducing more characters into your life and and finding that conflict yeah well, I don't want to find the conflict too much. I'm not going to right. sit there and like jump, you know, jump. Someone, yeah. Cut off a biker gang on the five, you know. <laughs> Let's see what happens in this situation, yeah. you know, method uh, writing. Yeah, I, I mean, you could do that for fiction, though. Yeah, like, yeah. you could think what would happen if I did this, yeah. but yeah. No, nonfiction, I do find myself doing some stupid things just for the story. Really? Yeah, I have done things just purely for the story. Oh, can you tell me one of them? Can you tell me the most embarrassing one? The one that you don't want anyone to ever find out? This I, this no, this doesn't go out on podcasts or anything. No, well, I will tell you um, a story that didn't make it into the book. And that's because it was a little bit embarrassing, but also I felt like it was a little too glib for the tone of the book. But um, when I was in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, um, I was at uh, the hotel that um, is now, it's known uh, in popular culture as Hotel Rwanda because of the movie and, um, and the book. Um, so I went to the Hotel Rwanda, and it was a very surreal place, knowing that people had, um, had you know, uh, survived the genocide there, and they were drinking, like, the pool water, and, and that's how they made it through the genocide, is they were hidden in this hotel. But when I was there, I went to that same pool, and there was, you know, a pool party, and there was a DJ, and he was playing Ebony and Ivory, and then um, the waitress brought me, like, the drink menu, and there was a special where um, you could get a margarita and um, a bikini wax for $15, and I was like, I've never seen a bikini wax for that price, like... Not at the bar, it's at the spa, but it was like a drink spa deal. Um, if you do it at the bar, it's a nickel. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, I, I, have to, I have to take advantage of this. Yeah. It, it's like an offer I can't refuse, right? Yeah, you right. know, get, get a spa treatment, a good wax, and a drink at the same time for one low, low price. And, and it was just very bizarre to be, you know, so exposed and... Um, having that treatment done at a place where people genuinely feared for their life and um, and thought they would die and and I still haven't even really like wrapped my head around how bizarre yeah. <laughs> that day was but it was it, the tone was just off for the book and and honestly I think I just did the bikini wax so that I could tell people later like hey I had a bikini wax at the Hotel Rwanda yeah. <laughs> but um, but it's not really a story that I often share. <laughs> I've, I would I would do a bikini wax myself. They, they would have to move around certain other parts, but I'd be like, I'm getting the bikini wax. Right. $15 for margarita and bikini wax, you know. Just. Right, I know. I just paid $15 for this drink right here, yeah. and I didn't even get a wax. Like, no. No, nothing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The United States just is in turmoil right now because of this. I know, I know. We're, we're dealing with a lot, so... <laughs> Um, that's a yeah. It's just it's interesting that the um, you know it, it's it's. I mean it's your book just really it's sad. It's just gut wrenching that you know you have someone you have your loved one die a mom or even a, a kid would be worse. But it's uh, 
But what, what we do with it, what we do with it is so important. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I remember um, having a drink with um, a friend who, when I lived in Cincinnati, my friend Kevin took me out for a drink. And I remember he told me about um, the death of his brother. And he said, you know, this is your crossroads, Maggie. You can either use this experience to become a better person or you can let it drive you in the opposite direction. So what are you going to do with it? And, and so a lot of times um, when I was going on this trip and, and just dealing with um, my mother's slow decline, I thought, okay, the, like it's a very big crossroads, like a very extended crossroads, but am I going to be better or am I going to be worse? And, um, and that's really helped guide me. And then, I, and then there, is there a point where you're like, should I, have, should I have written a book about this? Should I have just kept it to myself? Right, yeah. I'm, you know, um, there are some parts of the book that I'm obviously nervous about because it's memoir. And like recently my dad said he didn't want to read an advanced copy. He wants to um, show up at the bookstore the day it comes out. And he wants to say, like, that's my daughter. She, you know, this is her life. And I was like, you might want to read the book first because there's some family secrets in there. There are some things you might not like. There's some ugliness. So, but you know, it's all true. I, I did this, the same thing with my parents. I had to get, I gave my mom an advanced copy of my book because they are not portrayed well in the book. Right. But they also weren't the greatest at that in those areas either. And then, but my data held off to, uh, but the, the night that my mom had the advanced copy was an excruciating night for me. And then she came back and she's like, you know what? That was beautiful. And that was true. She was just like, and I was like, wow. I said, so I was just like, okay, this can go now. Now I can go out into the world. Right. I felt like I needed that little, you know. yeah, you know, Although I had a piece in the Washington Post um, last year, and it was only, it was literally 100 words. It was, that's it. And um, no members of my family read it. And I thought, well, if they're not going to read a 100-word piece, what are the chances that they'll get through my 93,000-word book? So, so who knows? Maybe all these secrets are safe. <laughs> and, and at the same time, I think... Uh well, you know, we go into it because we're so hold, we hold on to them. But people, I think, when people read it and they go, "Oh my God, I connect to this because I have this and this," and you're, and it kind of is mind blowing that it's just like, "Oh wait, that's not such a secret. That's just human, human." Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, and I think people. I mean, we've discussed the nature of memoir so often now, just in general, that I think people understand that um, so much of so much of memory is fallible and uh, a lot of things are different from different perspectives and you know we've just I, I think we're all mature enough to have that um, to know that going into a memoir even now I mean we're it's some there's my point of view and your point of view right, which yeah. we neither of us can get into if because we don't know the whole 100% I was just I was reading oh my God, this is just this is a random thought statistic that just came into my head, but it was about married couples and how they think they know each other, but they, they give tests like to each couple. And it turns out if they've been married for a really long time, about 35% of the time, they'll be right about what their spouse is thinking. Isn't that crazy? I thought it would be more. That is crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, I think people are just always on different yeah. levels and thinking different things. So, yeah. and, and and most of us are just worried about ourselves, which is great because right. then we could just be ourselves. <laughs> They're like, oh, wait, that person's just worried about themselves. So, right. yeah. 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 Um, in fact, uh, my best friend and I were just having a discussion about how. Um, you know, we always think things are about us. And, like, if something goes wrong, then I think, oh, what did I do? And usually, if it's with another person, it has nothing to do with me whatsoever. It's something completely out of my control. I have no idea what's going on in their life. But, you know, we just always, we're always so self-focused that we think it's all about us. Yeah. A friend of mine, his his, his kid just went through something, and, I, and uh, you know, something that wasn't great. And... Um, and I was, and I, all I could think about was, I hope I said the right thing. Right. I hope I say, while he's, while our family's dealing with a completely different situation, I'm probably not even a, 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 a fart thought in their head. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So often, like someone will tell me something really deep, and half the time I'm thinking, like, am I arranging my face in the right way? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, am I making the right facial expression? <laughs> yes. I've, I've done that on Facebook where someone will, you know, they put like a death thing or something and, that, you know, it's like my condolences and you accidentally hit the ha-ha <laughs> one and it's just, and it's so easy to do yeah. and it's just like, it can offend everyone. It's, I'm like, I'm very concerned with what emoji I use. Where are we in this life that I'm concerned about this? I don't get it. I know, I know. And I do that a lot when someone is, like if someone expresses a lot of pain or grief or something and I do a heart button, you know, the heart yeah. response to show that I love them. But then, then I overthink it and I'm like, oh, do they think that I love their pain? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Or if we put a crying one, then it's just like, what are you crying about? I'm the one that has the issue here. <laughs> oh, this emoji life we're building is terrible. It, yeah. No, we're going nowhere good fast with this. It's not connecting us. I think it's just disconnecting us in a weird way. That's why I like to, that's why I like a podcast. Because right. two people in person, we can offend each other here. Right. We, can, we can go, you know what? That offends me. It's on the mic and we can work it out. Conflict resolved. Perfect. Like a podcast Thunderdome. I'm very into the idea of Thunderdomes. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah. Get, you mean like... Finding some, finding someone who you don't like each other, and then yeah. just resolving your issues. Yeah, that's a great idea. Wow. Yeah. yeah, you know, you um, have to admit to people that probably think you like them that you don't like them. Right, <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. It might be hard to get guests on, <laughs> guests booked for that show. I mean, I have five people in mind. That, you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> oh, I have a list for yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. No, you know, yesterday I was talking to someone about how. Um, how, because we were talking about the coronavirus and the cruise ships that have been, you know, um, stuck. Uh, and then we were talking about all the things that can happen in international waters and, um, and how there's really no, like, um, law enforcement really overseeing this. And I thought about this short story that I wrote years and years ago um, that never went anywhere for good reason, probably, um, about my idea was to have like an MMA based cruise ship where you go out into international waters and it's like a floating fight club and it's just no holds barred. Like 
like just and it would be called a bruise cruise <laughs> and and it would be like a thunderdome like yeah. like two people enter only one can exit the ring like wow. because anything can happen on international yeah. waters and then and then you get a boat drink and yeah then you get a drink and you know you can hit the sun deck and <laughs> a bikini wax yeah. <laughs> yeah. the prize for the for the uh, the this toughest uh, ripped Street Fighter guy is a bikini wax. Anal bleaching for everybody, people. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. On a cruise ship, you could do that, that like, sun bleaching that people are doing, you know? Oh, what is that? Oh, so there were a bunch of articles about maybe three months ago about people who... Um, why is it always coming back to buttholes with me? <laughs> about people... We're, we're sponsored by buttholes, right. so this is great. <laughs> people... Um, showing their like spreading their anuses to the sun for like natural sun bleaching and and it's something about i don't know the sun's rays something i i didn't get that far deep into it yeah it's such a bad idea because what if you get a burn you do not want to get a burn there no it's a terrible idea and then some health officials like it it became such a thing on Instagram that some health officials actually had to come out and say, like, don't do this. It's not safe. Put on sunblock if you are going to be exposing your anus to the sun. You would think people wouldn't have to be told that, but, you know. You're, like, walking by going, look at all the assholes on that deck. Right, yeah. I th- you know, what started it was Instagram, where all bad ideas start, and... Um, and there were a bunch of people like exposing their buttholes in Joshua Tree, and that's how it all started. That's right. And you're out in Palm Springs. I am. I love the desert. Yeah. Well, how did you end up there? Uh, it was partially skydiving, okay. but also um, you went you went the wrong way in Cincinnati. <laughs> you're like going, wait a second, where are we? <laughs> so I had been living in Cincinnati, and I was the nighttime police reporter for the Cincinnati Enquirer. Uh, so I worked the overnight shift, and anytime there was like a body dredged from the river, which happens more often than you would think, and um, like a shooting or something in the middle of the night, I was the person who would go cover that. And um, and it's not a very creative job, uh-huh. <laughs> and it's very grim. And there was a point where um, I had seen like five dead bodies within a four-day period or had covered these really heinous crimes. Um, I sound like law and order when I say that, the most heinous crimes. Um, Yeah. Um, And and I thought, I have to get out. You know, I'm just, I'm done with this. And then I went to like a website, journalismjobs.com, and there was a job posting to be a features reporter in Palm Springs. Um, covering Coachella and the film festival and writing about cocktails and restaurants and celebrities and it sounded so much more appealing and it was um, that paper is owned by the same company as the Cincinnati Enquirer so it was just a job transfer and yeah and it's an hour away from uh, one of the best skydiving drop zones in the country so that was also appealing for me. And what is the one of the best what is the skydiving drop zone? Paris Valley in Paris, California, and I used to travel to Paris uh, to train. I had, I briefly had a skydiving team, and um, and I would come out to Paris and train with some of the skydiving coaches. And so I already knew that drop zone, and I really liked it. And Palm Springs is only an hour from that. 
what what kind of training are you doing in skydiving? What what is it? I mean, is it like where you work where you start doing tandem dives and stuff? Is that what you're talking about, or what's the training? No, so it's a thing called relative work, and that's where I'm sure you've seen it in. Um, like it's kind of a standard thing in those like motivational posters where they say like teamwork and they show a bunch of skydivers who have linked arms together okay. in the sky. Um, so that's called relative work and it's where the skydiver falls belly to earth and you have multiple skydivers falling at the same time and then you make like kind of patterns in the sky and and that's what happens when you're on a team. Like you have these things you're supposed to achieve in a certain amount of time um, and make these like patterns. Um, but I was also really into a form of skydiving called free flying and that's more like, I don't want to say like the modern dance of skydiving, but it's the more, it's, um, it's, it's more um, like head down or uh, just more interesting moves to me. Um, so, I mean, there are all different types of, of aspects of skydiving. I can really nerd out about it. but yeah. <laughs> Wait, it's, So it's something where you, like, you, you choreograph it on the ground and you, and you kind of work through the moves on the ground before you actually put them up yeah. and free fall? Yeah, yeah. So you know those things that you use to get under cars, like those little yeah. sliders? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's how you practice the skydives on the ground is that you all like get on those things and you kind of work on your your moves and your patterns now is is there uh there's got to be some type of like instant intimacy when you're in that situation or i i'm just i'm just guessing because one i'm never going to skydive right. so i want to i want to <laughs> just vicariously live it through you i'll do the i'll do the thing on the i'll do the choreography on the ground but i'm not going up there right yeah you know that's one thing i really love about the sport of skydiving is that um women and men can compete equally um there's no it's not really gender specific and and also, nobody really cares about your background or what you do for a living or anything like that. As long as you're all jumping from the plane and surviving, you know, you're all just kind of on equal ground, so yeah. to speak, no pun intended. But, yeah. um, but I, it's, it's a great equalizing sport. And, um, and I think a lot of people care for each other uh, within the sport. And I really, you know, I just really love these niche communities anyway. So yeah, yeah. you find that with people who like are deadheads or go to Burning Man or, and you find it with people who skydive together. And like, I am so sorry you had to compare it to deadheads I, and Burning Man. That's like, I'm like, no, no, I might skydive before that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I was trying to think, okay. Like, um, rock climbers the uh the self uh professed dirt bags because i've covered some uh hardcore rock climbers as oh. well uh, they're called dirt bags they call themselves dirt bags oh. yeah <laughs> and um you know a lot of them are like are the people who live in camper vans or that kind of thing and they're just constantly chasing the next rock face yeah it's kind of like storm chasers or like surfers surfers always looking for that perfect wave and yeah, yeah. that's their whole life goal they don't care about anything else and it's kind of sexy yeah. you just sit there and go that would be a fun life yeah. you know and just, yeah. so within the skydiving community um so there are people who are called cutaways and um and a cut a cutaway is when you are jumping um and you have a malfunction in your parachute your main parachute so you cut it away and you go to your reserve parachute well a cutaway as a person is someone who has 
taken care of, like, um, they've cut away from the rest of their life. Like, maybe they quit their job, or they leave their family, or they leave their home and focus on skydiving. And I think that's really interesting. And, and someday I would love to write more about the cutaway community. These people who just go from drop zone to drop zone and are constantly, you know, jumping and packing parachutes for, for their life. Yeah. And it's something that you can go into without having to learn to skydive. You're already right. in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I always like people on kind of on the fringe. So, and that's what I found a lot when I traveled for um, for this book is that I was really drawn to communities that weren't really necessarily um, the mainstream. And and I I found that a lot by volunteering or just um, striking up conversations and kind of following the kindness of strangers. I would just kind of make my way into these communities. And be fiercely independent in a in an area of utter vulnerability, is, you know, especially if you don't know the language and you're... It's intense. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what I found was that the world is really kind and that, um, that it really works... It works out when you um, accept the generosity of strangers. You, uh, I hardly ever felt like I was in danger during my trip. Um, and, and I was a person who was like, I was on a very, very slim budget. I had $10,000 for the full year. And, um, and so I did a lot of, you know, sleeping at bus stops or if someone would invite me to sleep on their couch, I would go do it. And, um, and I met the most amazing people that way. I think, uh, I think there's a beauty to living that close to the ground when you're traveling because if, if you had a ton of money and you went to all the five-star hotels would you have had those opportunities to meet those people oh absolutely not and i think if i had been traveling with a companion i wouldn't have had the same interaction with people but um because i was a woman traveling alone specifically um in places like like I spent a month in India and I had families who would kind of adopt me on the train yeah. or um, people who, who just felt more comfortable approaching me and, and, you know, giving me their kindness because I was alone. And, and if I had had someone with me, I don't think those would have happened. Isn't that great? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And so now traveling solo is my preferred way, except, except now I do travel with my five-year-old. And that's another way to get into awesome communities. Like we went to Mexico City um, last summer and he met every skater in Mexico City. <laughs> and, and so I met every skater in Mexico City and it was very cool. And we met graffiti artists and we met all kinds of like really cool people yeah. because my son was so interested in what they were doing and he felt, you know, comfortable approaching them and that was just a nice entryway into into a new culture i love that when i i you know i used to skate even though i don't look like, look like i used to skate but i'll stop and watch uh kids skating i'm trying to do tricks and then they'll come up to me and they'll be like excuse me sir is it okay if we skate here they think i'm a security <laughs> guard and i'm like i used to skate no i'm not the man <laughs> oh i love that yeah, yeah. no I, I mean it was when I did my backpacking trip that's in the memoir, I often wondered how it would be different if I were traveling with a child because people would naturally ask me if I had a family, if I had children, um, and, and at that time I didn't. And, um, and so I wondered how things would be different 
and now that I am traveling with a child, it is different, but it's different in a good way. You know, there, there are lots of cool things I'm seeing because I do have a little one with me. And the cool things he's seeing. I, oh, my God, I would kill to have that. I would kill to go back and have a mom that would be taking me all over the world. Yeah. So he's five, and I think he's been to eight countries now, and he's just such a good traveler. He's very chill, and um, and we have a rule that he needs to try at least one bite of everything, like when we eat, when we order some food, um, and we do a lot of street food kind of things. Uh, he has to try one bite, and he doesn't have to like it, and he doesn't have to eat anymore, but generally he likes everything. He's just really into trying new things. So when when you go on a trip and then you come back, um, I, I, for you is it kind of a culture shock to come back to the states, and then for him is it just kind of an easy like, oh, this is what we do now? Or, yeah. or am I putting emotions and words into everybody in your family? <laughs> no, no, he has no sense of like the scale of the world. So sometimes I'll on a weekend I'll say, so what do you want to do this weekend? And he's like, let's go to Asia. <laughs> um, but, he means the band right. from the 80s, the <laughs> yeah. prog rock. Oh, yeah, he's a huge fan of it. <laughs> um, but for me, definite culture shock. And especially after that year-long backpacking trip, I remember one of my first days back, I went to Costco, and it was such a... Like, I almost had a, a, a mental breakdown in Costco because it was so far removed from the markets that I had been going to, and it felt so cold and so strange, and... I couldn't make any decisions. I was like, why are there 15 kinds of cereal? And why is this mayonnaise the size of a Volkswagen Beetle? <laughs> you know, everything yeah. just felt so strange and weird and cold and hard. Yeah. That's why it's, I, I just travel, you know what, you know what I love like about Australians, they have the gap year and you're expected to travel for a year. And I, you know, I don't have kids, so I get to just tell my friends who have kids and go, you're going to let them travel for a year before they go to college, right? No? And then I'm like, well, you know, on my soapbox, I should just have a kid and then experience it and <laughs> shut the fuck up about it. But yeah, anyway, I just, but the, there's a, what, what do you, what do you call it? When you, what, what do you, it, I, the words on the tip of my tongue and you'll say it way better than me. But when, when you travel and you find that, that thing, what's the thing? Um, I, well, what kind of thing? I don't. Uh, <laughs> I find a lot of things when I travel. <laughs> the, the the thing about like yourself and humanity. Oh. Um, like, I guess you've already said it. The kind the, there's a kindness in strangers that yeah. we re, we don't realize really exists out there until we get very vulnerable. Yeah. And then people will pick us up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and you know the interesting thing also about traveling and now is that social media ties us all together so much so I would for instance meet someone on a bus in Ethiopia and then they would friend me on Facebook and now we're still friends or you know it's it's interesting that like the people we pick up along the way and just how small the world gets Um, and yeah and and also the world started to feel really small when I would start to see the same people over and over. Like I met this couple in Rwanda and then months later I ran into them in Ethiopia. And I, it's just, I don't know, the world is such a beautiful and strange place. And I heard a quote the other day about how, you know, 
there there's no such thing as magical realism. It's just like we tend to explain away these magical things that happen to us every day in in real life, and um, and I I do find like there's a magic to the world, and we try to explain it away as a coincidence or whatever. But um, but I love that it's out there and that these amazing things happen. Yeah, and 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 it's important to get out there. Because if you don't get out there, then the amazing things don't happen. Right. And then, and then you write a bunch of essays about thinking things and <laughs> sitting in your cubicle, which is what I had been doing. Well, there's also something fun about the inter- in- internal monologue right, yeah. of existential death right. coming up. Yeah. But until, until I traveled, you know, I had a bunch of like, short stories about people who would just, you know, make soup. Or, or sit in a coffee shop. And there's definitely a place for that, but I think you need to be a much better writer than I am to pull that off. And like, I need to be doing something and I need to have uh, something, I don't know. I just, I find that strange things happen to me in real life and that's the kind of thing I'm interested in writing. That's great. And then you also do a podcast with uh, Todd Goldberg and uh, is it Writer Strong? Is that the... No. Uh, no. Todd has a different. He Todd has two podcasts. Oh, okay. So Todd does one with Writer Strong and Julia Pistel, and then he does a podcast with me, and oh. um, and that one's called Open Book, and um, it's the less popular of the two podcasts. Because oh, okay. he has Literary Disco. Yeah, That's yeah. the other one. Okay. Um, but he's been doing Literary Disco longer, and Todd is um, is an old friend of mine. And in fact, I had written articles about him, oh, yeah. uh, you know, a decade ago, and then um, and then I went on this backpacking trip, and while I was traveling. I, you know, when I started on the trip, I thought I was going to quit writing and I thought I would find my calling as I was traveling. And I was like, maybe, maybe it's gorillas. Maybe I'm the next Diane Fossey or maybe, you know, uh, it's teaching English to people or, um, and then what I found was that as I was traveling, I was reading more and every book I really loved, um, I would read about the, the author and most of them said the author had an MFA. And I was like, what is this MFA? Like, that's the key. I need an MFA. And oh, I, I thought it was pronounced Muffa. Muffa, yeah. <laughs> and then, um, and I was like, oh, wait, my friend Todd does this MFA program. So I contacted Todd when I was in Rwanda and I said, hey, how do I get an MFA? I'd really like one of those because I, th- I don't know what I thought, that it was just like a key that would open, like unlock all this writing. or <laughs> I don't know what I thought an MFA was at that time. And Todd said, you know, um, he said, yes, I can help you. Call me when you're not in fucking Rwanda. <laughs> so I called him when I got back and, um, and I ended up doing the MFA program at UCR oh, wow. Palm Desert. Oh. And, um, and now I work for UCR Palm Desert, so Todd is my colleague. He was also my graduate school director when I got my MFA. Um, it didn't instantly you know, unlock these amazing writing abilities. It was still work. But, um, but anyway, that's how Todd and I became acquainted again. And now we have a podcast, and yeah, yeah now I have a book. 
And the, and uh, out of his MFA program, it seems like so much, so many great writers come out of it. It's so much fun, and they make them do the work. I think it's it's it's, it's kind of a more like you're here to learn how to work even harder. Right. Yeah. No, it's a great program, and I mean that's that's where I really found my tribe of writers. It's where I found some of my very best friends and so many people who inspire me. You know, there's so many great writers have come from that program and um, just great instructors. And I'm just constant. I mean, you know how it is when you're around people who are creative and inspired, it makes you feel more inspired. And so obviously that helped my writing. Yes. And it's, it's, I, I call it finding our weirdos. We have to find our weirdos and then, then I feel okay. I totally found my weirdos yeah. or they found me some, yeah. yeah, it's, it's been great. Yeah. That's what I love about LA. Cause I, I'm from San Francisco, <laughs> you know, and San Francisco, right. you know, we, we had our weirdos, but a lot of weirdos had to leave cause of just how expensive it got or whatever. Yeah. And coming to LA, I had a, I had a vision of LA that was very different than what LA is and now that I'm in LA I'm like oh there's way more weirdos down here there's all my weirdos are here right so well I grew up in Ohio and just California for me was like all of California was like the land of weirdos and I Uh felt like I need to get there like I know they're out there (laughs) I just I need to get there someday and so when I moved here it really was like finding my place in the world I'm just so happy to be in California I love how I love it how people because you know everyone has their uh, idea of what California is and they're just like oh my like people be like oh my god I wish I could be in California and I'm just like you know California is a very large state you could be in Visalia you know that right it's- yeah but you know I used to read like like sassy magazine and they would have things from like LA bands and whatnot in there and I was like I just need to get out there (laughs) like I just need to find my people I know they exist and they're not in they're not in Dayton Ohio I mean some of them were in Dayton Ohio not to disparage Dayton Ohio but um but yeah I was really happy coming here Ohio gave us a bunch of bands I was a college DJ in the 90s I give us a yeah, bunch of bands yeah. my favorite band the afghan wigs is from yes. ohio oh, and the national and you know all sorts of devo aren't they from ohio are they chrissy hind is from ohio um yeah, yeah a lot of good stuff it's the fun black keys. Black keys. it's fun to see what comes out of so-called you know not hip areas and you just and you realize oh wait a second you know that's like some of the greatest stuff comes out of the suburbs not in the cities yeah it's and it's just the frustration i think of it yeah so like my sister went to high school with kim and kelly deal from the breeders and um and i was going through my sister's yearbook one time and kim and kelly deal were cheerleaders and there are conformists i know right um they're just posers um and they uh, they held a Mr. Sexy Legs contest oh one time, and so there are pictures in my sister's, you know, Wayne High School, 1982 or whatever wow. uh, yearbook of Kim and Kelly Deal um, at this Mr. Sexy Legs contest. Wow. I know, I know. So that's a deep cut. Yeah, it is. <laughs> now, did the were the Pixies from there as well? Like, no, no they were here. The Pixies were Boston area, right? Were Didn't okay. I think? Kim Deal met um, uh, Frank Black. At, is that his name? Black yeah. Francis. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. I don't. I don't think he knows. I. Yeah. I. I they're from Massachusetts somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
I remember when I remember. So I was a Jehovah's Witness kid, you know, and I uh, and I go up to Berkeley, and I remember being in Berkeley with my suit and tie, my watchtowers in my backpack, and I went to the record store, and they had a Come On Pilgrim on cassette, because I because I was listening to college radio that left of the dial devil music, and so I when I I was just like, oh my god, I heard the Vamos. There was one song that KFJC would play constantly, and I'm like, I have to get this. And I remember walking up to the record guy, putting the cassette on the counter, and he's like, whoa, dude, this is really good. You, and I was just like, I know. It was the first time I felt at home in a record store because they kind of praised me for right? picking a deep-cut EP. You yeah, know? yeah. You know, just last night, I was thinking about how um, just, just how, like, music was such an integral part of like flirting in my teenage years and how technology has changed that um because my son is really into the song friday i'm in love and um and i started he's gonna smoke clove cigarettes and wear mascara yeah absolutely Um, (laughs) it's just a given at this point you just buy him cloves now just go you're gonna have to figure out how to do this later but um i remembered how my first boyfriend um he knew I loved The Cure, yeah. and there was a radio station that was going to play fr- the new song from The Cure at midnight, but he knew I wasn't allowed to stay up that late on a school night, so he stayed up and he wrote out all the lyrics of the song for me and gave them to me at my locker the next morning, and it was the sweetest, most romantic yeah. thing, and I thought, kids don't get that anymore. Like, if there's a new, I don't even know what's cool now, if there's a new, like, Drake track (laughs) they can just look it up and yeah I remember wanting to know the lyrics of things that I didn't understand and also mixtapes I used to make mixtapes for every girl that I just knew I was going to marry so I have a lot of engagements that never happened and I hope they're okay (laughs) when they hear this we're not engaged anymore (laughs) but um but the mixtape culture of just, I, I used to tape off the radio or I would tape off my record player and really curate how I felt about a girl through a tape. You know, and I have a real talent for making mixtapes. I'm not, I felt like that was my superpower. I'm really good at making mixtapes and I, you know, just getting the timing right and like the flow and, um, and, and then they went away and I was like, what, what am I supposed to do now? I have this amazing talent and nobody wants it anymore. Yeah. Everyone just plugs it in on Spotify and they yeah. think they're geniuses. And I'm like, you're not doing the hard work, man. You got you got to move the tape. You got to go in there with your like pencil and get the tape just right so it starts at the right time. There's a whole thing. I remember like sitting on my floor with all of these tapes around me and CDs and everything. I mean, I would plan this for weeks. It was, yeah. I you know what? Someday, maybe soon, when the whole grid collapses because of coronavirus. Yes. People are going to need mixtapes again, and I am the woman to give them to yes. you. And, and maybe, maybe there'll be one in 2,000 people without a butthole in their lives. <laughs> right, just to bring it around full circle. Yeah, I don't know how to help you with butthole problems. <laughs> I am not your girl for that. <laughs> Maggie, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That we had to end on that. Yeah. <laughs> Maggie Downs on Drinks with Tony. Check out her memoir, Braver Than You Think, coming out on May 12th. And remember, support your local bookstore and order it through them. I want to go back to bookstores again. 
I want to be irritated by someone sipping every cop copy of Bukowski and say, damn it, dude, you start with post office. B but I was looking for poetry. Damn it, dude, you start with war all the time. Get out of my way. Tune in next week when our guest is author Carla Malden and listen to how I perfect the right amount of questions to ask regarding her father, Carl Malden. And yes, we do discuss the streets of San Francisco, the TV show. Hey, thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. Have a great week.